Hello and welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. Hey, this is Ryan Parker. And we are a couple guys who talk about awesome TV. And dude, we have got not only not only are we talking about an awesome series, we have got an awesome episode this week. Tony, would you put it in your top five so far? Of Rectify? Oh yeah. yeah we, we've got yeah, yeah, yeah. episodes so far, but this uh tonight or today's episode to that we're discussing 205 um act as if i believe that's the title that's right boy it's special you know what i did wonder ryan before we get into the nitty-gritty of the episode i did wonder i don't want to i don't want to sell the american populace short but (laughs) a lot of um, a lot of americans aren't super well read and super engaged in stuff you know and i just think like the the literary references in this episode you know like the character of leslie played incredibly by leon rippy i mean the the he's the, the the shop owner of the antique kind of salvage yard type shop and then he, the rack on tour yeah, and then and then he hosts the party that night. But a, a character like that, you just think, and I assume he's not in any other episodes. I assume that was just a one-off here for that character. Who knows? Maybe he'll show up again. But or, or you know, we saw it with the bookstore owner a few episodes ago. These these little characters pop in to rectify, and they're super literate you know what i keep thinking and i'm sorry that i keep you know repeating myself on this but it does seem to me in the in the great tradition of southern literature these characters these these kind of larger than life outlandish characters who are well read well studied know know what's going on in the world um, but they're a little bit off center. Yeah, Tony, I I'm so glad you started with this because I, I and we're kind of diving into it here. That I've known so many Leslies in my life, being from yeah. the South, and one of whom is as was my dad's best friend um, oh, cool. from high school throughout their entire life. He was an artist. He tried to go to New York once to be on SNL, didn't make it. Came back. I mean, just a quirky guy. But my wife leaned over to me during the show and she was like, that's David. That's your dad's friend. I was like, yeah, that's Hmm. and it's it's such a cultural thing in the South. And I don't know. I've lived in California since 06. Uh, So what is that? Like 14 years. Um, The rest of my life, you know, I lived in the South in Mississippi for 18 or 21 years. There's just nothing quite like it. I mean, they're California eyeballs and then they're. The, like Southern oddballs. And, but yes, th- they're often steeped in a rich understanding of history and literature. Um, they're not the dumb rednecks that Southerners often get depicted as. Um, and it's a, it's a cultural thing too. I mean, the first conversation that Leslie and Daniel have is about economics, right? This new Southern yeah. bourgeoisie and the trickle down <laughs> of money. And Daniel's like, yeah, and it trickles on down to you. You know, I know. I uh, did love a couple things about that. He says, "Like, oh, the yeah, the the, the new, new South, South. Bourgeois- bourgeoisie." And Daniel very dryly says, 
I don't know that I qualify or something like so so, couple that. A couple of lines. Oh, no shit. So, yeah. But you, if you think about it, too, I told Amy last night while we were watching the episode, it, the, the, the podcast that can point people to if they missed it, the Shit Town podcast. Uh, which was a few yeah. years ago, focusing yeah, on a right. character that might be a little bit like Leslie, but that Southern progressive cultural person in a way, but certainly standing at odds to to the broader politics of respectability, so to speak. Uh, there's that real tension, and it's so understated where Ted and uh, Janet, where Teddy Jr. and Tawny, for example, they could were it not for Daniel Daniel's uh, situation fit that kind of cultural, culturally acceptable Southern lifestyle against which Leslie and his crew stands, right? Those two groups would never interact. Teddy Jr. is never going to that party. Janet and Ted are never going to that party, but that party's full of people who make the South what it is. Uh, and th- that aren't often explored when we think about issues about racism, you know, and, th- and, and justice and things like that. Not to say that they're perfect, but th- it's certainly so- something a bit more progressive than what we would see if we only stayed in in Teddy Jr.'s neighborhood, for example. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. A, c- a couple things come to mind. I mean, one is that... Um although this podcast is evergreen and, you know, people might be watching rectify and listening to this podcast in the year 2030, people who are listening to it, right. As it's coming out in 2020, the South there, the South is having a reckoning of its own right now. Um, you know, with the Confederate statues being torn down. And then what about the Mississippi flag, bro? Like what's your take on that? Uh, what do you mean? What's my take? It's past damn time. Um, I'm I'm proud that that uh, that decision was made. It was purely economic. Let's be honest. The people who really have the power to make that change. Now there are people who, for my entire life, have been fighting to have that thing changed. Uh, many of my friends who who still yeah. live there, you know, have been vocal and and pushing for that. And it's been this giant uphill battle, but in the moment in which we found ourselves with these protests and this and the civil uh, kind of social justice movement taking place. And then you compound that with the sec says no post season games, right? That's 20 to $30 million of revenue that disappears overnight. So let's just be honest about a, a significant portion of the fuel for that change for the people who actually make those changes. Um, what did, what did Chris Hedges say? Uh, don't appeal to uh, the the wealthy's better nature or those in power's better nature. They don't have one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's what I want to bring it back to the show and and talk about briefly because you're you're talking about basically two different cultural sets of people in this town in Georgia where the show was set, and you've got the um, very proper Janet. Ted Sr., you know, they're, uh, T- Ted Sr. is like, uh, well, Ted, Teddy Jr. also, it's like pleated khaki pants with their shirts tucked in, trying to run a small business in a small town, doing everything properly, 
easily offended, etc. And then you've got this Leslie with this kind of underground South. I mean, still, it's almost all white people. There were some people of color cast in that scene. Yeah. At the yeah. house that's, party. That's why I said I don't want to paint them in too, too yeah. bright of a brush, right? Because there's also um, no, no, no communities perfect. Okay. But all the speaking parts there are, are in, in that sure. scene are white people at of the course. party. Yeah. Um, but they're they're doing drugs. People are making out. It's kind of like a college house party. But these are all people in their anywhere from their twenties to their sixties. It looks like so. Leslie has this kind of oddball underground crew. W- what I don't get the sense is that either of those groups is particularly socially active or engaged. Like they're. The, Amantha fought to get her brother released, but I don't see Amantha fighting against the death penalty because it's immoral for a country in the 20th century, 21st century to have to, to for the state to put people to death. And this is where I think, you know, I can see and we, we maybe the seeds of this were planted is that John Stern, who's very much not a person of the South has just been given a job offer in Boston. And he asks Amantha to join him in Boston. See, he's going to be fighting against the death penalty. But it, it it's like um, all Amantha wanted to do was get her brother off of death row. She doesn't have a bigger agenda. And I don't get the sense that anybody has a bigger agenda, nor do I even get the sense that the people at Leslie's house party although they are well read uh and you know they're they're are they're they're well they're highlighting they're debating the occupy movement they're debating the Occupy movement and then what's going on and they kind of try to test daniel and and ask if what his opinion of it is and he talks about the russian revolution you know um but i don't get the impression any of them is part of the occupy movement they're just casting out opinions about it but my point is all that i don't get the sense that the kind of people who were fighting for change of the mississippi flag are represented in any of the people we yet see in this series they're not uncomfortable with being they're not uncomfortable with the legacy of the south i have not seen that as a part of this show so far yeah and and we're talking about a series for which these uh these the legacies of the South aren't necessarily the driving force of the narrative so far in the sense that uh, right. about like s- severe racism, economic injustice and all that. Those often are, are kind of the B or C stories in each episode. Whereas we're really focused on this one family, Daniel's uh, uh, inability to reintegrate and, and these things, all of which do have, like like we've talked about in past episodes, do have implications for the things that are, are certainly dominating conversations publicly now, you know, in the summer of 2020, but aren't necessarily the dominant themes in this series. But I will say what's, what I found interesting in this episode, too, was how it slightly complicates that dichotomy of, say, the politics of respectability versus kind of these the, the underside of that. And Janet in that conversation with Daniel in the garage about the bicycle. And that was another thing that just it's so subtle, but it rang so true is if you if you're around 
a small town south and somebody's on a bike, you're like, weirdo. Why are you on a bike? <laughs> you know, is also, it because it's so freaking hot all the time? It's too yeah, hot to just, ride a bike. Well, yeah, I was gonna say, like, it's usually a hundred degrees, you know, eight months out of the year, or it's yeah. bitterly cold when it's cold. But yeah, you, you uh, people who ride bikes in small town in the south is kind of like, well, why are you? Do you not have a car? Like, mm. what are you doing? And they and so they have that conversation, right? She, uh, her, his dad didn't want her to go ride on the bike, and she did. And gosh, just the questions that that begged. Of, well, a she loved to ride the bike. She says people looked at her funny for t- riding her bike to the grocery store when they had a perfectly good car. So there's a little bit of that even within that community that if you do even something as innocent as riding a bike, you could kind of be looked at like a weirdo. You're right? a weirdo, but, yeah. But then she goes into that conversation about why she was out riding on that day. And and boy, how that conversation just throws you into her experience of, is my son going to be murdered or is he going to get another stay? I mean, and, this is so interesting, right, about that scene. And you texted me last night as you were watching it. For one thing, she's she admits to basically she's she buys herself a brand new dress for her son's execution, which is weird. And she knows it's weird. And she kind of is like, I don't know why I did it. She says it's perverse. Yeah. She buys a brand new dress. Well, and you know, when she says it was July 10th, 1992, uh, you know, Daniel knows exactly the date. Now, as viewers, we don't know until she unfolds the story that is, you know, that on one of his, one of the days he was scheduled to die and, but then received a, uh, a temporary reprieve. She had obviously been to some of these before. And this time she just went out and rode a bike, got a, got a flat tire, rode it all the way home, got home after midnight, which is when, you know, the execution was supposed to be not knowing if her son had been killed or not. And you can, you know, you can, you can really, I think, sympathize with her that she would just want to be out riding a bike as far away as possible and then come back and find out, yeah, did he or did he not? Was he executed or was he not? I don't want to sit through the waiting, waiting, waiting. Why do you think it was so hard for her to tell Daniel that? I, I don't know. I we talked about that a little bit last night and was that was that purchase of a dress an idea of maybe like a new beginning? Because it was it was not a, a dress that you would wear to a funeral. And she said, you know, it's a summer picnic dress. But I thought about it too in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, a lot of people who are involved in or pay close attention to elections. I remember thinking about the twenty sixteen election. You can sit around and watch the television all day, or you can turn everything off and go to the movie theater. Right. It's it. Yeah. You know, when you're yeah. awaiting yeah. news that could be very good or very bad. And I just the election was the quickest thing that came to mind, but it could be a medical report yeah. or something you're like right. that where you're just like, I got to shut it off. But I, I think it was hard for her because that is also to to potentially imply like that she had something else to do, you know, that that he wasn't and his situation wasn't all consuming for her. Even though it was, because that's what sends her out. I mean, she's not just going out to ride a bike because she needs exercise or she enjoys the wind through her hair. You know, she is doing she's doing this because of Daniel's situation. But I think maybe she was afraid to. Imply that. 
or he, or he may take that the wrong way. I don't know. I, I, I like that we, I like that. I don't know why. I mean, I think there's a certain complexity there that, that is opportunity to think more on to, to add some richness to their relationship. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't want to tell the story. They're out in the garage and, um, she says, I'm going to go make a sandwich. Do you want one? No. And he's, you know, I want you to tell the story. Like, well, I don't want to tell sad stories. It's like, no, sad stories are what defines us, you know? And so she tells that story. I didn't find it that sad of a story other than it brought back to him how close he was to death. And I think it, you know, she was probably ashamed not only of buying the dress, but the fact that on the night her son was supposed to die, she went on a bike ride instead of fighting for justice or whatever. I mean, let's, I'm sure Amantha didn't go on a bike ride that night. She no. was, you Glued know, fighting, own. fighting to get him, uh, to get T- him off of death row. Tony, I think that's, uh, th- his point to, to her about, you know, life is short. That's why we have to tell the sad stories, you know, early in that, um, scene in the garage, he says to her, we are what we don't throw away. Yeah. And right. I just love that. And he talks about teddy bears and barbells. And then of course she goes to look at her bike, but it's also the the kind of the stories that we hold on to, right? The way in which we hold on to those stories. We talked about this before the power of memory and how we remember um, what stories do you tell each other about the past? And I, I think specifically here, between mother and son shapes that relationship and builds what that relationship's going to be because to, to maybe p- pivot here to stay within that kind of family unit, the, the ways in which Janet and Daniel interact are vastly different than the ways Daniel and Ted interact. And I think this episode represents a hinge in that relationship where Ted is finally yeah. starting to step into something new and and trying to move towards a future where Janet of her own I think of her own admission would simply say Daniel can do whatever the hell Daniel wants to do because he's suffered so much and Ted seems to suggest and maybe more than suggest we are still responsible for the choices we make as adults even if he suffered greatly he still exists in this family uh, as a son I'm still a resident of this home and he has to be held responsible for the choices that he makes. And I don't know if you want to comment on that because I think we, that obviously leads into what happens when Daniel goes to the party. I mean, one thing I want to say about that scene is that it's kind of a two part scene. The one part where Ted walks in with Janet and, and lectures Daniel. I mean, first of all, it's like, look, dude, Daniel is 36 years old. What the hell? What the hell are you lecturing him? Like, that's not how you talk to a 36-year-old. He was but talking is, to a is white... He, but is he 36? We, we talked about this previously, about this arrested development. He, is he yeah. behaving like a 36-year-old? He's no, not. he's not. But, te, but Ted's not dealing with that in a way of like, here I've got somebody who's in a state of arrested development. He's kind of sure. a little bit like, look, put on your big boy pants. If you're going to tear sure. the kitchen apart, you're going to clean up after yourself, et cetera, this kind of thing. Follow these um, rules, yeah. Yeah, but I will also say the other layer is 
anybody who's had a step parent or been a step parent, that is such a freaking awkward relationship. Sure. Um, yeah. And so for him to upbraid his 36 year old stepson is like not cool, not appropriate, but he's acting. It, it's, it's like, I need to throw my weight around. I'm the man of the house. Like he, that, it, it seems like that's what's at the, at the root of this. I need to exert my authority. This house is slipping away from me. And Janet, oh my gosh, does she ever slap him down later in the episode when, you know, he comes home? Hey, it's just us chickens. Yeah, just us chickens. If you ever talk like to Daniel, you will never talk to Daniel like that again. You won't. And Ted's like, you won't allow it. And she says, he will not be treated like that in his own home, which is my home too. And then she just says, it was his first. I'm going to bed. And you think Ted Sr. is sleeping on the couch tonight. <laughs> yeah, Ted's sleeping on the couch, but Ted's also not 100% wrong either. Like, Oh, no, he's not 100% wrong. Yeah. I mean, for Janet to be like, Dan- yeah, th- this is, a, you know, this is another terrible... And and again, I think a lot of people who've been in step families, I, I know I have you know people in my life for whom this has been the case. They've had to choose between a child and a spouse because yeah, it's a tough step. It's impossible step family situation. decisions don't always work out, and the kid hates the step parent or the step parent hates the kid, and the the one who's related to both of them is caught in the middle, and it's. It's a terrible predicament. It's a terrible predicament for uh, Janet, and she doesn't even know she's in it, that she has to choose, which she really doesn't. But, you know, if Ted Sr. calls the question and it's like, it's either him or me, now we know. Janet's going to say, bye-bye, Ted, and give yeah. me back the tire store because yeah. <laughs> I'm with Daniel all the way. That's like, that marriages don't recover from that. I will tell you that. So this will be fascinating well, to watch this marriage. Well, and, and, and absolutely. And but even just within this episode to see to see the way in which Ted talks to Daniel, whether or not he should have had that quote unquote tone with him. Daniel certainly reacts like a teenager in a way. He, he reacts like a scolded teenager. And the, it's yes. not a direct correlation, but it, I think it, I think there's enough there to say, you know, Daniel goes to this party which is kind of a rebellious thing that a teenager would do. Yeah. And then when he gets to the party, Lord have mercy. How many parole violations is he committing at this party? Right. You know, of course, not that he's on parole, but I mean, he's doing drugs, he's drinking, he's uh, using a firearm. Uh, but there, there's something about that where he kind of is. Rebelling may be the right word. Reveling is, is for sure a, a good description of what he's doing. But, you know, we see really Leslie and all his kind of, I wanted to say demonic glory because he has this kind of provocative presence there at the party. But, and I didn't know if you felt that as well. Like if, if he's, is he, is it good for Daniel or not? Man, when, when, uh, when he was drinking, making out with the women, even snorting cocaine, I thought, all right. You know, like, I get it. He needs to blow off some steam. When he took that shotgun, when Leslie basically 
force that shotgun on him, although we know about Daniel that he has a strong enough character that if he really didn't want to shoot the shotgun, he would say he would have said no, you know, I because he at first he says no unless he kind of pushes the topic and finally Daniel took the shotgun. He's totally high on cocaine and he's been drinking. I just think this is a terrible idea for him with all these people around. You're right, because it is for sure he is prohibited from uh, under his terms of release. I'm sure he's prohibited from using a firearm and just the number of things that could go wrong and a tool of such violence in in the hands of a guy who. Uh, even if he didn't kill Hannah, he has admitted to, you know, having fits of rage. I just thought that that was a very tense scene for me. And as you know, as somebody who regularly shoots shotguns and owns many of them, I just thought this is not a guy who should be shooting a gun. So I did think that the party scene was. You know, I thought the party scene was wild and interesting. I was actually found the the scene at the antique shop more compelling. But before we go, yeah, there's one yeah. more no, scene we should well, we're talk not tra- about. Yeah, I've got a couple other things I want to talk about before we get and out of here. One of that is uh, Teddy Jr. and Tawny. I mean, first of all, Tawny's got a bun in the oven, we find out. And, and she wants to go back to school. And, and Teddy's like, to go back to college. oh, he, shit, who's paying for this? he doesn't seem super happy about either of those. About no, of those. he is panicked. He Why is, is he panicked. so panicked about, uh, okay, I did think about this. And again, I, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to fall into some stereotypes of, of the South. But in the North, anybody who was brought up as well as Tawny obviously was, would have gone to college. I mean, like that's just what everybody just goes to college. Have we, haven't we had some insinuations in past conversations that her upbringing may not have been as solid as Teddy Jr., for example? Yeah, I guess that may be true. I just, I'm interested in the fact that she didn't go to college and now she does. And I don't know. I mean, obviously it's a threat to Teddy, right? Cause Teddy probably didn't go to college either. Or maybe he did go to college and drank his way through and, watched sec football games and was a fraternity boy and now runs <laughs> now runs a tire store yeah um yeah I had it. is he intimidated by her independence of of her wanting to you know her wanting to to get a college degree i'm sure there may be some element of that to it but my initial reaction was that this is a purely financial crisis for for teddy oh Gotcha. It's who's going to pay we, for it. We saw the rim. We saw the rim display, and he dropped yep. some coin on that rim display. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And a bun in the oven, as you said, potentially. Like right. those You're are right. all. You can just feel that, the walls. Really, ch- the walls coming in on that family's finances and on that decision that he he went against. You know, everybody basically to do. Hey, let's right. talk about your favorite character. Um, I really love Amantha in this episode. I feel like there's some <laughs> vulnerability that yeah. we haven't seen before. I think there's uh, some effort. I love, you know, when when we were talking with multiple writers of, of just saying the opportunity for growth and character development and for her to decide to stay. I, it's clearly that, sh- that she loves Daniel, but it's also, I think, her just trying to get right. She takes this job at the thrifty town and I think, 
possibly some of the best writing for two two scenes. The scene in which she tells Janet that she got the job and the references to Peanut yeah. and the pregnancy. Absolutely hilarious. So believable. And then who writes a scene in a show like this? Um, and you only write a scene like this unless you have a storyteller or storytellers like Ray McKinnon and the writers in this room who have deep and profound empathy and compassion. Who puts a scene about a failed uh, EBT transfer in, in a show right. like this? Just right. to take that moment and what it does. I think it's a, I think for us in the conversation that you and I've just had, it's a reference to those economic differences where, where yeah. Amantha's raised differently. She's just unaware that people rely on those that, and, and I, again, I, I could be uh, painting stereotypes here, but uh, Amantha is clearly not thinking that this, that this white woman, that that would be an option for her. Mm-hmm. And so, and the quiet way in which her supervisor comes over and kind of really puts her in her place I just thought it was such a beautiful moment and the compassion and at least the respect or the familiarity that the manager had for that uh, yeah. customer who she knew, you know, just the whole thing that's that scene of that it paints of that town and just how the divisions can be there. It's just such a, I, I thought it was just such an effective addition to this episode in a way to really flesh out Amantha, you know, and as that customer tells her, she walks up and she says, your light's not on. And it just, the whole thing <laughs> is such yeah. a, it's such a deeply spiritual thing. And it's such a, that's such an easy line. But for Amantha, it just, it's not, she, her light hasn't been on. She's just been lost. And she is still lost. She's still and, lost. And I think that scene exemplifies it. And then she, of course, John is, and John is saying, is throws this, you know, really big question her way. Would you want to go to Boston? My goodness, she can't figure out if she wants to stay in Polly or go back to Atlanta, you know? Right. And and sadly, it seems like she has been defined by her brother's, um, you know, situation. Just everything around that. Yeah. And now yeah. that's been taken away. And now she's lost that self-definition. And it's really... She's figuring out who she is. Who the hell is she? And is she just yeah. going to run into the arms of of John Stern and another man is going to define her. It was her brother and now it's going to be her lover, you know, and let's be honest, she cannot figure out who she is. She doesn't seem like she's going to be quick to run to John either, which is kind of surprising uh, given how attracted they are to each other, how, how, how cl- they get along quite well. I mean, yeah. they seem to be a good fit, but you know, she doesn't say to him, yeah, let's go because that would be an easy thing, right? I mean, it'd be tough to make new community. And yeah, Boston, but here's but what I'm going to argue: run away and, and go with John. Yeah, but here's what I'm going to argue about: that is that they have not spent enough time. They've never been together long enough for John to realize how lost Amantha is. And he, if if they really were living together in Boston, after about three months, he'd be like, this person is not ready to be in a committed relationship because she doesn't know who she is Hmm. that's what i think interesting i mean that's really that's really that's really a vapor trail but well um, that's really three i mean we keep they they really keep us grounded in these three relationships right when and the kind of bombshell like bombshell may be the wrong word but just these subtle little um crises that pop up right for teddy jr and tawny she may be pregnant for 
you know, Ted yep. and Janet, he put his foot down and now for Amantha and John, it's what, what is the future? So we have these three core relationships whose futures are really up in the air, right? Or uh, can go any number of ways. And that's just going to be exciting to see over what well, we just now halfway through the second season. Yep. 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 Well, it's been, it's great. Uh, I love it. And I'm so glad that people are listening and hopefully we'll get along. another guest on. We've been two weeks without a guest and we're going to, we'll be changing that soon. So yeah, hopefully. we we've, we're really, really fortunate that so many people who've been involved in rectify some of whom we've had on and others that we're scheduled to have on in the future. They've been super gracious. Thank, it's like a silver lining of COVID that a lot of, you know, really like hardworking actors are, stuck at home and writers and they can come on with us. So we'll have some more on. If you like this podcast, we would love it if you shared it with other people who are like to dig TV. Uh, we'd love it if you subscribe on your chosen service. Uh, we'd love it if you gave us a rating and a review. That would be really great. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. All right, that's it for this week, yep. Ryan. What are you looking for in two hundred six? I guess it can be interesting to see how big of a hangover Daniel has <laughs> <laughs> from this party. Yeah. Does anybody? Hangover. Does everybody make it out alive from this rowdy, raucous party? Yeah, yeah, yep. It's well, we'll also see Tawny probably take a pregnancy test, so we'll look forward to that. There's a lot to look. For. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right, everybody. Yeah, thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.